Let's pray together and we're going to get into our Bibles. Father in heaven, it is good to come together this time of year. I love the fact that the world has tried, Satan has tried, to steal the Christmas season from us, and they just can't pull it off. 2,000 years, they've tried to do that. They can't pull it off. You are the reason that we're here worshiping today. You are the reason that we've come together to celebrate. You are the one that we have come together to celebrate. And Lord, that's going to continue on for the next few weeks. I'm grateful that you have helped us protect this time of year. And I am grateful, Lord, that you have given so much of yourself, all of yourself, to us. Help us never forget that. And help us to always live a life that appreciates it. And now as we open our Bibles, what we're asking is that you combine some of the old teachings that we're very familiar with with some new teachings. Help us see either new things or old things in new ways and stretch our lives by doing that. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The year 2003, a new term made its way into our dictionary. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. If you've never heard it before, or even if you have, let me remind you of what that word was. It's the word flash mob. Now, I mentioned that last night to my kids, and my oldest son, Nick, who's here with us today, thought I said flash bomb. And he kept saying, you can buy those on Amazon. <laughs> Bothered me quite a bit that he knew that. So we're, we're still working our way through that. But flash mob. Now, here's the definition of a flash mob. A group of people gather together suddenly in a public place, perform a unique and sometimes, um, sometimes seemingly pointless act, and then they disperse quickly. That's the definition of a flash mob. Back in 2003, as far as everybody knows, the very first one was recorded. It was done by a professor of psychology at a university, and he just wanted to try it as a social experiment. So he had students from his class go into a public place where they appeared just seemingly out of the air, performed a pointless act, and then they dispersed quickly. He wanted to see what would happen. What he did not know is that the whole concept of flash mob would take off. People would continue doing those kinds of things to grab people's attention, sometimes for the purpose of entertainment, sometimes as a political statement, sometimes just to cause an uproar. Sadly enough, this thing that started as an experiment in a classroom has been twisted somewhat from the realm of social experiment into violence. That's the real tragedy of it. But there are still other flash mobs that are happening around the world that are absolutely stunning. Jim Germany sent me an example of that this past week. I had a direction all figured out for what we were going to do the next two weeks as we lead up to Christmas, and I thought I had the sermons headed a, a certain direction, and then I watched this clip that he sent me, and I turned everything upside down and decided to go a different direction. I think you'll understand why after you watch this. Take a look at this.
that tremendous? Now, I've seen several examples of flash mobs sent to me through email or different ways through the computer, but so far that's my favorite, just my favorite. I love the way people started to point when Mary and Joseph and Jesus walked out and the random kneeling of people that were not even a part of the flash mob. They knelt before the baby Jesus. That's the way it should be. It really is. So after watching that a couple of times on Monday after Jim sent that to me and deciding that I was going to go a different direction and kind of caught up in this idea of flash mobs, I I started studying it a little bit more and came to this conclusion. Nobody else shared it. I just came to this conclusion on my own. The very first flash mob wasn't done in 2003. The very first account of a flash mob is recorded in the Bible. It really is. And it surrounded the exact same event, the coming of the baby Jesus. Now I want to show it to you. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now let's stop there for just a second, because we've got to set the table here in order for all of this to make sense. Every one of us has heard the Christmas story at some point, and we're familiar with the angel showing up to the shepherds. We're familiar with that whole account. Everything that we just read, that doesn't take anybody by surprise sitting in this room. But what you may not realize, this may surprise you just a little bit, that is not the first account of an angel in the Christmas story. By my count, there are at least four different times that angels appear. People have always wondered, who was this angel that showed up to the shepherds out in the middle of this field? It is entirely possible that it was the angel Gabriel. He was given marching orders to go and announce the birth of Christ. Though the Bible does not identify him in Luke chapter 2, he's identified in some of the other accounts. Let me take you through this just so you can do the math with me. We'll come back to Luke chapter 2. Go over to Matthew, just one book back to the left. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is what we read. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So the angel appears to Joseph. He's already thinking, I'm going to divorce her quietly, going to go on my way. But after the angel, he said, nope, not going to do it. Turned it upside down and simply did what the angel told him to do. That's the prudent thing to do. You receive a message from God like that, you do what God tells you to do. Now there's the first account of an angel showing up in the New Testament. Let's go back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. 
Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Now, we could be guilty of reading that story just like this, which means we read it with a Christmas tone about us, and it really robs the story of some of the significance. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to back up just to Zechariah's question. This is verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Now, can you hear some of the skepticism in his voice? Zechariah is really saying, this doesn't make sense to me. She's been barren for a long time. We've been without child and you're telling me that all that's going to change? So he asked this question, how can this be? I really like the way the angel responds. Listen to this. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Gabriel has an attitude. He really does. A little bit of an anger problem. So Zechariah questions him, and Gabriel just brings the thunder. I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God himself. How dare you ask me that question? That's how Gabriel would have responded to that. And then he goes on to say in Phil's paraphrase of it, now you're going to shut up right before me at this point. You're going to stay shut up until this baby is born. Nine months before you're going to say anything at all. How dare you? And then Gabriel flies off in my estimation, leaves him standing there. Let's go to another one of the accounts. That was number two. We're just going to skip over to verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? There's a difference in the question, even a difference in the tone. The angel answered, 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Beautiful responses. If this is what God wants from me, no question about it. I'm going to do it. Those are the first three accounts of angels showing up in the Christmas story. Then in Luke chapter 2, we find this fourth account. The shepherds are out in the field, and you heard what happened. The angels came, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. We're going to pick up in verse 10, or actually verse 8. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Now here's the flash mob part of this. This is great. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. The first ever flash mob right there. It wasn't in 2003, it was 2,000 years before that, and it wasn't a group of people assembling in a mall. It was a group of angels coming from the heavenly realm to shepherds out in the middle of a field, and the very glory of God shone around them as they brought the message of the Savior coming to the earth. That's a flash mob. And there is nothing seemingly pointless about it. It was declaring that everything was changing. Declaring that salvation had come to the world. Declaring in the glory of the Lord that God was pleased. That God was happy. That God was a part of what was going on. That He loved you and He loved me and He loved all of mankind so much that He would send His Son to this earth took a flash mob of angels to announce that. It's pretty cool the way it plays out, though, isn't it? Now, if we take the concept of the glory of the Lord and the happiness that is associated with the glory of God and begin to really explore that, we can determine some amazing things. And that's what I want us to do this morning. This is where we're going to take some of the old concepts of the Christmas story and combine it with some new ideas and maybe show you something that you've never seen before as we approach Christmas this year. Go with me to the book of 1 Timothy. While you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. The Apostle Paul, in the books of 1 and 2 Timothy, is actually addressing his, what he would refer to, son in the faith. His son in the faith is this person of Timothy. Timothy would become the first full-time pastor of the church in Ephesus. When we read the, the book of Ephesians, Timothy was leading that church. In the book of Revelation, when we read to the, the letter to the church in Ephesus, Timothy would have been the leader of that church. He was young. I mean, just young. When he first took over for Paul, he didn't know what to do. He wasn't a confrontational person. He didn't have the, the same power and conviction that Paul did. So Paul wrote him a couple of letters to help him out, to put him on the right path and correct some of the things that the church in Ephesus was dealing with. One of the things that they struggled against was what is referred to as Judaizing. There were a group of people called the Judaizers that were really struggling with the Old Testament law versus grace. Their struggle sounded like this. They wanted to be Christians. They wanted to believe in grace. They wanted to accept Jesus Christ. 
but they were so tied to the Old Testament law, they couldn't break those ties. So they drug the Old Testament into the New Testament. They drug the law into grace, and they combined the two. It's called Judaizing, and it caused horrible problems in the church. What they were teaching was that you could be saved by grace, but you could only be sanctified by the law. God was going to change all of the things in your life that needed to be changed, but it wasn't grace and mercy that would do the changing. It was the law that would do the changing. They were combining that. It's still going on today all the time. There's a group of people that believe that they have to clean themselves up before they can become Christians. They have to change their lives before the grace of God can come rest on them. I have a good friend named Scott who wrestles with that all the time. He'll tell me that he wants to be in church, but he isn't good enough. He'll say things like this. Maybe you've heard this before from people. If I come to church, a lightning bolt is coming through that roof. That's what Scott says all the time. I'm not good enough to be there. I'm not worthy to be there. Yet he really wants to be. As we progress into the realm of salvation conversations, Scott will say he wants to become a Christian, but he isn't good enough yet. And I'll tell him that is upside-down theology. That is like mowing your yard and trimming the hedges before the lawn service comes. That's exactly what it is. If you've hired people to come take care of your lawn and you say, I've got to go out and mow it and trim it and get it all ready before they get here, there's no logic to that. Same thing in Christ. When we say that I've got to be sanctified before I can get saved, we are upside down in our thinking, completely upside down in our thinking. And that's what Judaizing taught. It taught the law is going to make you good enough to accept grace. Folks, you will never be good enough to accept grace. You accept it, and then God will do the mowing. He'll clean it all up. He'll take care of what needs to be changed in your life. And that's the way we should approach it. So Paul is teaching Timothy that he's got to correct these people's thinking so that they don't stay on that same path. We're in the book of 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, starting in verse 8. And we're going to look at this, and then when we get to the end of it, we're going to kick some dirt off the top of it and turn this thing over so that you can really see the great teaching of this. Verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So here's what Paul's teaching Timothy. The law is good for what it was intended to be used for, which is to point out our sin. Now, if you take that list that he gave Timothy and you break it down, you'll find out that he covered all 10 of the commandments in it. So he's saying, look at this, the law points out all of our unworthiness. It points out all of our sin, but it does not save us. It cannot save us. So use the law, Timothy, use the law and teach the law for what it was intended to do to help people understand their unworthiness. Now here's where we've got to kick some dirt off of this passage. We've got to turn some things over and when we do, hopefully you're going to see something that maybe you've never seen before. Verse 11, look at this again. That conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Listen to that one more time. That conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. 
If you have a pencil with you or a pen with you or a highlighter with you, make that verse, verse 11, stand out in your Bible. And you may actually want to write some notes in there as we go through this. There are some changes that can be made to that verse based on the original languages. If you've worshipped with us very long at all, you know that I am not a scholar of the languages. So anytime I bring this up, it means that I've had to go to other resources to help me understand this. And that's what I did with this. And I'll show you what I'm talking about as we make our way through it. I actually wrote these changes in the margin of my Bible. I would encourage you to do the same thing because it gives you a deeper understanding of this. Let's start with the first word that I want to pull out. That conforms to the glorious gospel. Now, you might want to circle that word gospel, or at the very least, grab hold of it as we kick this dirt off the top of this. Gospel in the original languages simply means good news. Now, I didn't have to go to other scholars to find that out, neither did you. That's what gospel means. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel presentation is this. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the good news. If you place that up against the law, where people were finding out that they weren't good enough, that they weren't worthy, that was great news. The same thing is true for us. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. We're not worthy. But the good news is, God says, even in our unworthiness... He will send his son to die for us. Now let's move on. So if you've taken that word gospel, you've circled it, made it stand out in your Bible, you might want to write the word good news in there. Then we go on. Of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. That word blessed is the next one that I want you to grab hold of. And this is really the great teaching of this. In the original language, that word is actually happy. The word happy. It is the same word that is used... Back in Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, if you've ever studied those, you've probably studied them sounding like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. But that word blessed is actually the word happy. Now listen to it with that word. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So back in 1 Timothy, same word, blessed is happy. Listen to that verse with those changes. That conforms to the glorious good news of the happy God which he entrusted to me. Changes it just a little bit, doesn't it? One more time. That conforms to the glorious good news of the happy God which he entrusted to me. Here's a teaching that you may not have ever grabbed hold of. God is immeasurably, immeasurably, infinitely happy. We serve a happy God. Why would anybody want to tie themselves to a sorrowful, mourning God? We serve a happy God. And that infinite happiness, that immeasurable happiness is tied directly to His Son. The good news of Jesus Christ, He is thrilled with His Son. That happiness pours out because of Jesus Christ and what He has done. 
God is infinitely happy in Jesus. And because of that, He is infinitely happy in you. Jesus made it possible for you to have a relationship with His Father in heaven. And that relationship is exactly the same as God's relationship with His Son. It is a happy relationship. That has the ability, the understanding of that, has the ability to change your prayer life. A number of us, when we go before God in prayer, we go in one of two ways. We either go with a sorrowful attitude where we continually rehearse our failures before the Lord, or we go with a pleading attitude where we are only putting requests before God. Because we believe God is this sorrowful, mournful, judging God, that's how we approach Him. But if you can understand 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, it can totally change your prayer life if you can understand that God is happy with you. I'd illustrate it for you this way. One of my favorite times of day is when our family gets a chance to connect every evening. Typically, that happens around our dinner table. We have tried from the the beginning of our marriage, 23 years, Tina and I have tried to protect that time every day. When our children were born, we worked hard to protect that time every day. But like many of you, it doesn't always work. We have busy lives just like you do. So we don't always get to do that. But as much as we can, we're there together at the dinner table. And it's my favorite time. Because we get to start talking about what's happened in their lives and the kids just start talking with us, sharing with us what, what they're doing, sharing with us what their friends are doing, talking with us about their lives. When it doesn't get to happen around the dinner table, I try to make it happen and so does Tina in other ways. Like right now, it's difficult for us with Nick being in college. He's 1,600 miles away. 1,600 miles away. My word, that's tough. One of my favorite things with him right now is when he calls or when I call him and, and he just starts telling me what he's doing. There's times that I'll say to him these words, Nick, just tell me stories. And he'll start telling me what he's been doing and what his friends are doing and where they've been and all kinds of different things. Every once in a while we even talk about college. But for the most part, I'm just saying, tell me stories about what's going on in your life and it's cool and it makes me smile. It blesses my heart. Eli and I right now have two chairs sitting down in our basement in front of the wood stove. And if I'm down there stoking the fire and Eli's home, I'll say, Eli, come down here. Eli comes downstairs and we sit down in those chairs together. And I say, Eli, just tell me stories. Eli starts telling me what's happening in his life. Katie is typically where I'm at or where Tina's at. And and she just randomly starts telling us stuff that's going on. And I love that. It, It just blesses my heart and it causes me to smile. And it makes me happy as Katie's just sharing her life with us. I love it. I love it. God loves the same thing. He wants you to just talk with Him. Tell Him what's going on in your life. Imagine, if you would, that you're sitting in a chair next to Him and in your prayer life, you can just say, God, this is what I've been doing. This is what I've been up to. It doesn't have to be tied to a request. It doesn't have to be tied to you saying, Lord, please forgive me for my sin. God doesn't always want to hear about your sin. He wants to hear about your sin. But He wants you to tell Him the good things. Lord, this is what's happening in my life. And then you picture him smiling because we serve an immeasurably happy God. And because of Jesus Christ, he is happy in us. He's happy in what you're doing with your life. He's happy as you talk with him, as you share with him, and you connect with him. Now, if you want to make all of that make sense and you really want to be able to trust me on that, let's go to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 17, we actually find recorded an amazing thing. It is the prayer of Jesus before he goes to the cross. 
And it can be broken down into three parts. The first part is this. Jesus is praying for himself because the cross is not a wonderful prospect. He's not just excited about going to the cross, but he is willing to do it. and He's going to do it because of us, because he loves us. Yet he prays that God gives him all that he needs in order to pull that off. The second part of the prayer, he's praying for the apostles, for the disciples, because he knows what they're going to have to do. But the third part, the last part of that prayer is about us. Jesus prays for us. He prays for you. He prays for me. I want you to listen to that prayer. This is John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This was Jesus's prayer. God, see them as you see me. Look at them as you look at me. Be happy in them as you are happy in me. That's what Jesus wanted. He prayed for that. That's why he came, that God would look on your life the same way he looked on the life of his son, and he would be happy in it. Happy in it. And if God is happy, then what Jesus was asking is that we would find that same happiness in relationship with the Lord. John Piper teaches this. This is really good stuff. He says that there are three things that stand between us and true happiness in this life. Number one, there is nothing on this earth of personal worth great enough to satisfy the deep longing of your heart. There is nothing on this earth or in this life great enough or of personal worth enough to satisfy the deep longing of your heart. Number two, he says, even if there was, you do not have the personal strength to savor that to its fullest potential. That's why people that are constantly pursuing worldly things are never happy. It never satisfies because we do not have it within us on our own to really savor that to the fullest possibilities or potential or the maximum capabilities. You can't do it. Neither can I. The third thing that Piper teaches that separates us from true happiness in this life is the knowledge that everything's going to come to an end. It's going to wear out. It's going to disintegrate. It's going to go away. It's going to come to an end. And that keeps us from being truly happy. But in Christ, all three of those things get answered. We begin to look at something that's not of this world. We begin to look at something that comes directly from heaven, and it has the ability, he has the ability, Jesus has the ability to satisfy the deep longings of your heart. To fill the empty spaces, the hollow spaces, Jesus Christ can take care of all of that. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can actually progress into the realm of worshiping him giving your life fully to Him, acknowledging what He has done for you and acknowledging 
who he is, and then you get blessed with this knowledge, that will never end. Your relationship with Jesus Christ will never end. Not ever. Amen? So you see what happens is real happiness is possible through Jesus Christ. True happiness is attainable through Jesus Christ, and it will never, ever end. Most people would tell you that relationship with Jesus Christ begins with acknowledging who He is. I agree with that. It begins with a confession of who He is. Even for the disciples, the apostles, that's where it began. Jesus actually said to them when they were gathered together, who do people say I am? It's recorded in Matthew chapter 16. Peter finally spoke up. He said, some say you're Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets. In my reading of that, I picture Jesus smiling. And then he says to them, but what about you? Who do you say I am? This was Peter's response. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says this to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, for you are the rock and on this rock I will build my church. There's that word again. Blessed are you, Peter. Happy are you, Peter, for you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. You have the relationship. That's where it all starts, right there. That's where true happiness comes from, in relationship with Jesus Christ, and it will never, ever end. I want to show you what that looks like as we close out this message. We're going to project the good confession up on the screen, and I want to invite, as the worship team comes up here, I want to invite all of you that have made that confession of Jesus Christ For every one of you that can say, He is my Lord and my Savior, and I have confessed this, I want to invite you to stand right where you're at. Just stand up. And we are going to repeat this confession. It's a little bit different, so we're just going to read it together. But we're going to read it together with a bold conviction. First service, I'll tell you, sometimes I'm so disappointed in the first service crowd. There was no conviction, there was no bold conviction. I have great expectations of this crowd with bold conviction. We are going to read this together, and then Ray is going to offer our invitation. So read with me. I believe that Jesus... That's not bold. Here we go. Let's start again. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Savior, my joy and happiness forever. Ever, ever, and ever, and ever. And ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. To go along with that, I think uh, this flash mob, mob mentality is kind of cool. As I was thinking about that, I think, you know, how can I do the invitation like that? And I thought, uh, yeah, we're going to do it that way. What we're going to do is, because I think when we get to heaven, somebody's going to start praise, and it's going to be maybe one person, and then it'll be hundreds and then thousands, and then millions, and then billions, and then everybody will be praising God. And I don't think you'll be left out. I don't think it's not because you won't know the words. I don't think it'll be because you can't sing. I think it's because you're going to get so caught up in the fact that you're in heaven with Jesus Christ and God that you will have no choice but to praise Him. And uh, that's flesh mob mentality, ain't it? You, you, you noticed on the screen when, they, when we showed the video, there were some people kind of standing around looking and thinking what's going on, and, and they didn't sing me because they didn't know the words. It won't be that way in heaven. It's going to be totally different. And I told these guys kind of follow my lead here. We're going to start out with singing. Oh, they kind of know this. Uh, I didn't tell you guys that, but kind of follow my lead, okay? 
We're going to do this in a mob mentality thing, the, the imitation time. And if any of you have any doubts that you're not going to heaven, today is the day that you need to realize it's going to be eternal praise, eternal adoration of Christ. And today is the day that you need to make that step and go over here and find out how to do that. We're going to, sing, we're going to start it out with the worship team singing, Oh, come let us adore him. And we might sing this five or six or ten times. And then I want this group over here, this side right here, to join us the next time, okay? And then after we sing it one more time, I want this group to join everybody else to sing it. And then we sing it again, we want this group to sing with us. By the time we get done singing, we're going to be singing, Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord, okay? We want you to just sing that just like you're singing it in heaven. Because I guarantee you, and I, can, I think I'm safe to say this, and once you get to heaven, there'll be no excuses. You'll be praising God as if you were glad to be there, and you will be glad to be there. So let's sing this song. Oh, come let us adore. 